This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. John's introductory words in his gospel describe Jesus as the Word of God, John 1.1. And in the opening verse of his epistle, first epistle, he introduces Jesus as the one from whom the disciples heard the word of life, 1 John 1, the first three verses. In Revelation, he states that God gave Jesus his revelation to make it known to John, who wrote down and passed it on to the church. Although the title of the last book in the canon is often listed as The Revelation of John, it is, in fact, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, having received God's revelation, Jesus reveals himself to John on the island of Patmos. He tells them to write seven letters to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Jesus, indeed, is the living word of God. And John is on the island because of the word of God and the testimony he has presented about Jesus. In short, John has been faithful in proclaiming God's revelation in Jesus Christ. John begins the first chapter of Revelation with a twofold prologue in which he states first the origin and recipients of the apocalypse and then the formulation of the first seven beatitudes in this book. Identifying himself as John, he addresses the seven churches in the province of Asia and greets them in the name of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He purposely places Jesus last in this Trinitarian greeting because John makes Jesus known as the Redeemer who is coming back on the clouds. Now the prologue, that is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the things he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Good. The term apocalypse derives from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means an uncovering or revealing. Technically, as a heading, the term re relates to only one book in the entire canon of the scriptures, namely Revelation. But the initial readers were not unacquainted with the term apocalypsis, which occurs 18 times in the New Testament, 13 of them in Paul's epistles. From time to time, God revealed messages to his people, but in the apocalypse, he presents an extended uncovering of his biblical revelation to Jesus. Hence, the lengthy title for this book is The Revelation of God to Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ imparts a revelation he has received, at that moment it becomes his own revelation. 
Indeed, the title of this book can also mean that Jesus Christ presents revelation about himself. This is so in the second half of the chapter and elsewhere, where he reveals himself to John and to the readers of the letters. Jesus is both the object and content of the revelation that ultimately belongs to him. He is not an angel who passes who passed it on to John, but he is a revealer of and about himself. In short, Jesus' revelation is both subjective and objective. The double name, Jesus Christ, is his given name and a description of his mediatorial office. In succeeding verses and chapters, the single name occurs either as Jesus or Christ. The double name tells the reader not only who Jesus is, but also what he has done and continues to do as Lord and Savior. This combination appears at the beginning of the book to identify him fully. He is the Son of God who appeared in human form to take upon himself the obligation to redeem and restore God's covenant people. Notice that Jesus Christ is subordinate to God, who by giving Jesus the revelation implicitly appoints him to an assignment. The verb to give is not merely a handing over of a gift, but rather it intimates the task of making God's revelation known to his people. Jesus Christ receives the task of showing it in the manner of a pictorial display. The book itself is an eloquent testimony that this is display is given by signs, symbols, names, numbers, colors, and creatures. At the beginning of this book, its pictorial characteristics already become visible in the verb to show. It is a hint to the reader as to how the book should be read and understood. The word servants denotes not slaves, but God's people who obediently obediently do his will. Here the word bears a single message, whereas the two other places it has the dual message, his, your servants, the prophets, which is a common Old Testament appellation. The single message states that God's servants withstand temptation, bear his seal on their foreheads, and sing his praises. Now, what do we do with the word soon? To the recipients of the seven letters, it meant that persecution would soon be reality. But this is only one aspect of the things that will come to pass. Throughout the ages, God's servants have experienced that the things Jesus made known to them truly occurred. Therefore, the church today is anxiously waiting for Jesus' promised return. The repetition of the words, what must soon take place, is significant because they are part of the last chapter of the Apocalypse, 22, verse 6. That feature, that features the promise of and petition for the Lord's return. To quote a reassuring word from Peter, 
the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. In Second Peter 3, 9. Then we have the word to make known, to signify. Here is a foreshadowing of the method in which revelation is conveyed. The conveyor of the message is an angel who differs from Jesus Christ, the revealer. An angel is a messenger, never a revealer. Continuing, we would expect John to write the present tense of the verb to testify, as he did in the concluding words of his gospel. This is the disciple who testifies to these things who wrote them down, John twenty-one twenty-four. But in the case of the apocalypse, John is resorting to the technique of seeing himself from the perspective of his readers they would realize that by writing the past tense, testified, John places himself in the time when they received the apocalypse. This is called the epistolary errorist, for all you scholars. Some scholars are of the opinion that John wrote the past tense because he first wrote his apocalypse and afterward added the prologue. But this is unlikely. Because John wrote not on individual sheets of papyrus, but on a scroll, which precludes adding a prologue. The author first had to see the things that were revealed to him before he could record them in a book. Then the phrase, the Word of God. It does not mean the person of Jesus Christ, but refers to God's revelation. The Apocalypse originates not with John, who is the writer, but with God, who reveals his word to the readers through John. The testimony of Jesus Christ is the completion of this clause, which is in slightly altered form, appears repeatedly throughout the book. Chapters 1, 6, 12, and 20. The question is whether the genitive in the phrase testimony of Jesus Christ is subjective or objective. Subjectively, the testimony belongs to Jesus, who is the messenger of the Word of God. Objectively, the phrase points to God's faithful servants, including God, and, pardon me, including John, who proclaims the Word and preaches about Jesus. We go on to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud and the, one, the ones who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things written in it, for the time is near. This is the first of seven Beatitudes in the Apocalypse. The word blessed is sometimes translated as happy but its meaning is more than happiness. It points to God from whom all blessings flow, to borrow the opening line of Thomas Ken's doxology. In both the Old and New Testaments, the blessings of the Lord are reflected in the delightful faces of His faithful servants. The blessing of the Lord descend on both the person who reads 
and the words of this apocalypse in the local service and the hearers who listen reverently and obediently to these words. In the ancient synagogues, the law and the prophets were read on the Sabbath day. And in the churches, the gospels and the epistles were added to the reading of the scriptures. Present tense to read and to hear is in the present to indicate that this is not merely a single exercise, but rather that the religious exercise must be kept regularly, regularly, especially on the Lord's Day. This exercise is meant to worship God and to strengthen believers in their faith. The term prophecy appears seven times in Revelation and does not necessarily refer to predictions. Prophecy in this book relates to God who through His messengers makes His truth known to His people. Prophecy means a continuation of God's Word in the Old Testament Scriptures and indicates that God is the author who endows it with His authority. The prophetic message of the Apocalypse therefore assumes its rightful place among the other books in the canon. And now a word about the time is near. The Greek language has at least two words for time. Note, the first, chronos, from which we have the words chronic, chronicle. This word denotes calendar time of longer or shorter durations. Second, the word kairos signifies an opportune moment or, dis, or of decision. This is the word used in the clause for the time is near. We're not talking about chronological time, we're talking about the opportune time. For readers of the revelation, the time is at hand to make a decision. The word occurs seven times in the apocalypse. With the composition of this book, the word kairos has come, that is, the time kairos has come. Aside from the word chronos, it spans the passing of the ages. Although the end has not yet come, and the kairos is still in progress, so much of what was to occur has already occurred, and now surely we may look, we may look the more eagerly for the end. The book of Revelation repeatedly states that its contexts relate to the time at hand. It informs the readers that its message is applicable to the time in which they are living, the conflict between God and Satan, Christ and the Antichrist, the Holy Spirit and false prophets, the church and immorality is occurring in their lifetime. Consequently, every generation has to appropriate and apply the message of the apocalypse and each generation of believers must wait with eager expectation for the Lord's return. Um, there's a note under Greek words, phrases and constructions. The last entry under verse 3 is kairos. And I go to St. Augustine 
who differentiated Kairos and Chronos by saying, quote, the Greeks indeed used Kairos as a particular time, not, however, as one which passes in an alteration of divisions, but as one which is perceived as time for harvesting, gathering grapes, warmth, cold, peace, war, and any, anything similar. They speak of chronoi as the very divisions of time. I thought it was very helpful to go to St. Augustine, who knew the Greek, who knew Latin, obviously. And let's also be honest, he was a lot closer to the fire than we are. And we can learn. We move on to verse 4. The greeting. John to the seven churches that are in the province of Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne. And then 5a. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John identifies himself. He presents himself as a writer of a well as a well-known person in the western part of Asia Minor. He identifies himself in the Apocalypse because this genre differs from his gospel and epistles. The readers needed to no further identification than the name John, because for the Christians throughout the province of Asia there was only one person who could speak with authority, namely the Apostle. As members of the seven churches residing in the province of Asia, they knew the venerable John. When Jesus appeared to John on Patmos, he mentioned the seven churches by name, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These seven churches received greetings from the triune God and in addition, they obtained the text of the Revelation. Notice that this is the first time the number seven appears. Beginning with the address, John demonstrates that the Apocalypse is written in epistolary form. In brief, the first line of verse four is equivalent to the address on the envelope. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. The greeting of grace and peace also occurs in other New Testament epistles. In Paul, Philippians 1-2, and in Peter, 1 Peter 1-2. Other letters add mercy. And I call your attention to 1 Timothy 1-2 and Jude, verse 2. The salutation grace, charis in Greek, is a variation of the Greek hyrain, which was the common greeting of Greek-speaking populations. And the word peace, shalom, expressed here by the Greek irene, was used by Jewish people as a salutation. If you go to Jerusalem today, the people will greet you and say shalom. And they talk to you and they walk away and they say shalom. So it is hello and goodbye. Shalom. Further, John re differs from other letter writers in delivering greetings from all three persons of the Trinity. He describes the Father as the one who is and who was and who is to come, 
This greeting is unique and reveals God's infinity with respect to present, past, and future. God is timeless from eternity to eternity. The description of God would also be applicable to Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Messiah was known also as the coming one. And in this Trinitarian greeting, Jesus Christ has a place, and so do the seven spirits. That is the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Paul usually greets the recipients of his epistles in the name of God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Here, however, all three are mentioned, preceded by the preposition apo, from. At this point in Greek, the grammar is extremely awkward which translators sidestep by providing a smooth translation. Critics are quick to declare that the author of Revelation cannot have been the writer of the fourth gospel, who writes acceptable Greek without grammatical errors. We dealt with that earlier. They conclude that if the apostle John penned the gospel, another John must have written the apocalypse. And this is not necessarily so if we consider that the Apostle John was surrounded by assistants in Ephesus when he wrote his gospel, but was alone on Patmos. Because of his Jewish heritage, John would not dare to bring any changes to the appellation I am, Egoimi, by which God reveals himself, Exodus 3, verse 14, at the burning bush. You also find that in John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. The Greek translation of the Old Testament has the expression ha'on in Exodus 3:14 Septuagint, which is exactly what John writes in this text. John refuses to have the name of the I am conform to the rules of Greek grammar. Thus he breaks grammatical rules so as not to discredit God's immutability. And John is consistent in his refusal, as is evident from other places where the same expression occurs. His wording, the one who was, refers to God, who existed in eternity before cosmic time came into being. And the futuristic phrase, the one who is to come, appears in the Greek text of Psalm 118, verse 26. And so, the entire clause from the one who is and who was and who is to come must be understood as an unalterable noun. And it has nothing to do with the mistake that John made. Then we read about the seven spirits. You read about it in 3, 1, 4, 5, and 5, verse 6. This wording does not, John does not explicate this wording. Some translations have the sevenfold spirit or seven spirits as a reading in either text or margin. Interpretations of the expression seven spirits vary. First, some scholars say that they are seven angels because spirits are sometimes called angels. But angels are created beings subordinate to God and in the apocalypse are never called spirits. The term seven angels occurs frequently 
Indeed, angels remain God's servants who can never fill the role of the third person in the Trinity. Second, others contend that the seven spirits are symbols of divine majesty as powerful beings through which God blesses His church. These powerful beings are inferior to God and thus cannot complete the fullness of the Trinity expressed in the greetings. Third, the Apocalypse speaks of the Spirit but never uses the name Holy Spirit. Instead, we assume that John employs the symbolism of the number seven and thus describes the Spirit. The seven spirits are sent out to all the nations of the world so that through the church's faithful teaching of the word, people everywhere may come to know and worship God. The number seven signifies the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his person and work as exemplified in the prophecy of Zechariah 4 verses 2 and 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In the holy place of the temple, Zechariah sees a golden lampstand with seven lights, each having seven spouts and wicks. The abundance of oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit at work, as is evident from God's declaration, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God rules this earth, not by an earthly power, but by His Spirit. In short, John relies on Zechariah's prophecy when he writes a greeting in his Apocalypse. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Once again, John pens the full name Jesus Christ to stress the earthly life of Jesus and his messianic office. He is the second person in the Trinity. But John places him third. John first sees the temple as the place where God the Father dwells in the most holy place. Then in the holy place he knows the candelabra with the seven branches symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And last, Notice now the symbolism. And last, at the altar, blood was shed for remission of sins, pointing to the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why you have that order. Father, Spirit, Son. This interpretation finds its basis in the expression before His throne, referring to God on His throne. The candelabra in front of the most holy place, exemplify the Holy Spirit, and at the altar it is Jesus Christ who set us free from sin by His blood. Three designations are given to Jesus. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. First, let us consider the faithful witness, which in the Greek is rendered emphatically as the witness, that is, the faithful one, emphatically. John may have taken the phrase from Psalm 89, 36, 37, where God mentions the faithfulness of David's lineage. 
His line will continue forever and His throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon. The faithful witness in the sky. The throne typifies divinely granted authority over the earth. God swore an oath to David's lineage that he would be seated on the throne and now is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the firstborn of the dead, has conquered death, exercises absolute authority over both the living and the dead. He rules sovereignly over the kings of the earth. The wording derives from Psalm 89:27, where God says concerning David, I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted over the earth, the kings of the earth. God's promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, to whom everything has been subjected. The topic is doxology. To him who loves us and set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. John continues his comments on Jesus Christ by devoting praises to him. The graphic description of Jesus who loves us appears only here in the present tense. Notice that the present tense is juxtaposed with the past tense of set us free. To heighten the contrast of a continuous act and a completed act, Jesus shows his abiding love which comes to expression in his finished work on Calvary's cross. That is, he released us from sin and guilt once for all. That's the completed act. Now the continuous act. We see the vivid contrast between the ruler of the kings of the earth who shows his love by shedding his blood for sins and us who are undeserving sinners. Robert Thomas correctly observes, this is the only New Testament instance where his love is so described. Now, next, some translations read, washed us, which in the Greek differs from set us free by only one vowel. And I can only do it by giving the Greek. And even if you don't know a word of Greek, look at it. You see that the one is lusanti. The second one is lusanti. And the only difference is the lack of the O. We call that the Omicron in the second word. Has the same pronunciation. Whatever reading one prefers, the washing away of sin results in being set free. And made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. John had in mind an Old Testament passage that combines the concepts kingdom and priest. He reflected on the scene of Mount Sinai where God told the Israelites, although the whole 
The whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom and priest and a holy nation. Now we acknowledge Jesus as king and priest who, having cleansed his people from sin, desire them to be a kingdom of priests worthy of presentation to his Father. These people are a holy priesthood in which they presently serve as priests of God and of Christ. Jesus' kingdom differs from a worldly kingdom, as he told Pontius Pilate. He has citizens in every area, sector, and segment of life. These citizens seek to live obediently by the rules of Christ's kingdom. They pray for all those who are in authority and conduct themselves peaceably in godliness and holiness. They demonstrate the love of the Lord Jesus by helping the poor and feeding the hungry. They defend the rights of the disadvantaged. They care for the needy people. They proclaim and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As citizens of the kingdom, they testify to the present reign of Jesus in the world today. Christ's followers who make up his kingdom honor him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings and utter their daily prayer, May your kingdom come. To him be glory and power forever and ever. The exact wording of this doxology occurs only here in the Apocalypse and is almost the same as that of Paul's doxology in Romans 11.36. John records doxologies in other parts of Revelation with similar expressions. But note that in this verse he ascribes the doxology to Jesus Christ. Now the last Two verses of the introduction. Verse 7 and 8. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Yes, indeed. Amen. This verse appears to be a liturgical passage that was composed and circulated in the early church. It is a stanza that in Greek New Testament and in modern translations is set off in four lines, concluding with, yes, indeed, amen. <clears throat> it goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, prophecy about the Messiah as the Son of Man. This is the first announcement of Jesus' return, which becomes more pronounced in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22. John not only speaks about Jesus' suffering and triumph, his priesthood and kingship, but also about his imminent return. John looks into the future and sees Jesus returning on the clouds of heaven as he himself promised. John calls his readers to the reality of Christ's coming by saying, Look! He follows it up with the present tense. He is coming, which has a future and incontestable connotation. He will come. For John himself, in a sense, these words were confirmed when Jesus appeared to him on the island of Patmos. 
Now he writes to tell the readers of the Apocalypse that the return of Jesus is truly imminent and everyone should look for his coming. Scoffers say that Jesus coming on the clouds is unrealistic because vast areas of the world, think of the Sahara Desert, are cloudless from time to time. How can Jesus come in the clouds? Ah, come now. But John informs everyone that Jesus indeed returns seated on a cloud and that his coming is sudden. Clouds are the visible signs by which God displays his majesty and clouds surround Jesus and his angels. In the words of the psalmist, he makes the clouds his chariot. John borrows language from the messianic prophecy of Zechariah 12:10 pointing to the visible return of Jesus he declares that every eye will see him well, how is that possible right now it is 10:30 almost in the morning it is 10:30 in china people are in bed sound asleep we hope now how will they see Jesus Well, I'm not going to solve this problem, but I would like to say we are living in an electronic age. If something happens, let's say, of a serious nature in, let's say, the United States, by way of the news media, it is flashed around the globe in a moment. Now, may we not expect Expect that Jesus, something similar, is doing something to say, Look, I am here. He's capable. How that will be, I don't know. But every eye will see him. And then what is going to come is that the unbelievers face the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6 the last verse of that chapter. And that's the end. This is still the day of grace. And no one, let me be honest and direct, no one living here in the United States can say, I never heard the words Jesus Christ. I've never heard them. And you can say, didn't you use it in swearing? Didn't I hear you? And no one can say, I've never seen a cross. They're everywhere. And no one can say, I have never heard about the Bible. Never heard the word Bible still the bestseller. Look, it's here. And Jesus will say, look, I made myself known. But you refused. And then, the day of wrath has come. I continue. John borrows language from the messianic prophecy of Zechariah, pointing to the visible return of Jesus. 
He declares that every eye will see him. He writes a singular, singular adjective and noun, every eye, to indicate the inclusiveness of all people, believers and unbelievers alike. The clause, <coughs> even those who pierced him, pertains not only to the Jews and Gentiles surrounding Jesus' cross, it refers also to all people who despise, ridicule, and reject him. They are unable to escape, even though they call on the rocks and the mountains to cover them. Revelation 6, verse 16. Revelation gives no indication that Christ's enemies come to repentance so that all those who have refused to put their faith in Jesus will face the judge of all the earth. John writes, all the tribes of the earth, which can refer to the tribes of Israel, or to all peoples and nations of the world. Further, the expression will come, will mourn because of him, means an outward display of lament, <clears throat> but not necessarily, <clears throat> excuse me, not necessarily an inner sorrow and genuine repentance. The citizens, okay, let's see. The mourners will beat their chest with their fist and rue the life they led. They will be filled with remorse, but not with penitence when they see Jesus. Because they do not repent, they face personal loss at the judgment. In his eschatological discourse, Jesus speaks of the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. When they see him coming with power and glory, the people who have refused to acknowledge him will realize that it is too late to repent. John concludes these poetic lines <coughs> with an affirmation, Yes, indeed, Amen. The first part of this affirmation is a Greek idiom, the second, a Hebrew idiom. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here is the first self-designation of God, which John repeats with an addition, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, in 21.6. The question, however, is, will these words refer to God or to Christ? For one thing, the I Am was spoken by God when He called Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies Himself repeatedly with the I Am formula. Before Abraham was, I am, John 8, 58. Both God and Jesus identify themselves as I am the Alpha and the Omega. Note these parallels. God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, Christ. I am the first and the last, God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Christ. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Phrases are used interchangeably. <coughs> the parallels are identical, but not Jesus, but God is called Almighty. Nonetheless, 
Christ is eternal and can say that He is the first and the last, the originator and the one who completes the work of creation and redemption. He is the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, everything, everything from A to Z. He is fully the Word of God. Thus we see Christ as a divine agent, both in God's creation in all things and in God's eschatological fulfillment of all things. Jesus is the one who was sent by God, the Father, to deliver the words of God. This verse summarizes the first segment of chapter 1 by emphasizing the divinity of Jesus Christ as one with God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ has been from eternity with the Father and has come to earth to pay the penalty for our sins through His death and resurrection and is giving us the promise of His return. Jesus Himself is uttering the words of this text as is evident from the succeeding segment, the verses 17 and 18, where He identifies Himself as first and last, the living one who was dead, but now lives eternally, holding the keys of death and Hades. Jesus takes center stage in the first eight verses of this chapter. And here I'm indebted to John Walford, who for years, decades, was president of Dallas Seminary. But this is tops. He calls attention to the first eight verses of this chapter, and John Walford says, quote, If no more had been written than that contained in this introductory portion of chapter 1, it would have constituted a tremendous restatement of the person and work of Christ, such as is found in no comparable section of Scripture. And all of us can say, right on. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.